Why am I here behind this pulpit about to deliver this monologue? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question, and thankfully we don't have to guess or come up with our own answer. The answer is found in Ephesians chapter 4. The reason I'm here about to give a monologue to you is described in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. It says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets. I'm neither. (laughs) Some as evangelists. That's not me either. And then finally, some as pastors and teachers. He, Jesus, gave some pastors and teachers, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Why am I here? I'm here to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you can build each other up in love until we attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a segue into Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is doing that very thing with the 12 apostles. He is equipping them for the work of ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, if you've been with us, because today's part four, you would have known already that this is education. This is Jesus educating these freshly minted apostles who are about to go out and do ministry for the first time by themselves, apart from Jesus. They're going to go out in pairs throughout all the land of Israel on what amounts to a religious uh, national survey. Are you ready for the king? Are you ready for the Messiah? They're going to go announce that and proclaim that. And Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 10. In the second discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, he is equipping them for the work of service. This is Jesus equipping Peter, James, and John, and the rest for the work of ministry. But Matthew also gathered his material and arranged his material for the church, didn't he? Matthew is writing the Gospel of Matthew for Christians, for the church in the first century. And so Jesus taught these words around 30 A.D. to his 12 in Matthew 10. But then Matthew captures them for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit around A.D. 55 for the church, thus for us. And so what was basic instructions for ministry for the apostles becomes For us, basic principles for Christian ministry. Today is part four. These are essential actions then and essential attitudes that we must practice if we want to do ministry like Jesus. If we want to do ministry that Jesus favors and smiles upon and gives his stamp of approval, then we need to follow his mandate, his principles. So we can bring up the slide now to just review a little bit these principles for Christian ministry. And uh, we're just going to take you where we've been so far, the first eight. And today will be the final four. My list grew from ten to twelve. So today is our final four. But here's our quick review. Number one is we go to the Jew first. 
And when we get there, number two, we proclaim repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And number three, we back up our message with good deeds. Number four, we give away our ministry for free. Number five, we accept help from God's people. So even though we're giving away ministry, we're allowing the people of God to support us and send us and help us in all manner of ways because no one can do this on their own. Number six, as we face rejection, here's the first ominous note. We must move on. Once someone has rejected us in the message, their decision is final. Their heart is hardened. We are foolish to keep pounding away at that same hard heart. All we're going to do is make it harder. So Jesus says, move on. Shake the dust from your sandals. That brings us to number seven. If there is rejection, then we can expect persecution. There will be opposition to Christian ministry because the message is offensive to the fallen man. Number eight, as this persecution comes... We must fear God and not man. We must fear God and not death. We must fear the one to whom we must give ultimate account and not puny, creaturely man. So these are our first eight uh, principles in Christian ministry. And we'll begin now today with number nine. It's simply confess Christ. Go with me to Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And we'll read the passage today along the way. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Principle number nine is we must confess Christ. We must model this in our Christian ministry and we must call other people to do it as well. A shift has taken place in Matthew 10 from Jesus directly speaking to the apostles and addressing them as you and your to now in verse 32, everyone. You see that? Everyone who. In verse um, 37, he who loves, he who loves. Uh, verse 38, he who does. So forth. So Jesus is now clearly expanding beyond the apostles himself to the apostles plus their audience. So these things now that we're going to see, especially in this uh, eight, uh, nine, ten, and eleven, will be principles that we must first model, we must first exemplify, and then we are to call others to do the same. And here the principle is to confess Christ. Coming off of the persecution and the fearing God and not man, in the face of opposition, in the face of intimidation, we are to give a spoken, verbal, public acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to confess Christ. Not just that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. To confess Christ is to own Christ, to acknowledge Christ, to declare Christ, to proclaim Christ, to agree with God that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Son of God. Jesus is Lord is the great confession of the Christian church from the earliest days. This is what it means to be a Christian. You stand up unashamed and you confess that Jesus is master. Now, the context here is, of course, still in Matthew chapter 10. Look back at verse 17. As Jesus told them about the hard road that was ahead for these men, he says, beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts. These were, were their little Sanhedrins within the local villages, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. So they're going to arrest you, 
accuse you, try you in their courts, and then punish you in church, beat you in the synagogue. Verse 18, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father. That's the context. In other words, if you confess me in the court of man, I will confess you in the court of God. We're here echoes right now, don't we? Of Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Well, the corollary, the opposite is also true. If you do not confess Jesus as Lord, and if you do not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. You see, and so we must confess Christ. If you disown Christ, if you deny Christ, if you reject Christ in the court of man, he promises that he will disown you and reject you in the court of God. Now, this disown or deny here would be the person's final answer. This would be a a mark of apostasy. This is someone who has who has weighed the evidence And has come to a conclusion that I will not have Christ. I reject Christ. I do not believe in Christ. And that's my final answer. And he says, if that's your final answer, then I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. We must draw that distinct clarification because we know that one of these twelve that he is addressing would deny him. Three times. Peter's in the audience. And Jesus says, if you confess me, I'll confess you. If you deny me, I'll deny you. Well, Peter denied him. Was he ultimately denied by Christ? Well, of course not. Why not? Because he repented. See, Peter's three denials were not his final answer. His final answer was dying upside down on a cross for his Lord Jesus Christ as a martyr. And so Jesus has grace for the temporary denier. But there is no grace and there is no mercy for those who die in final denial of Christ. Of course, the other extreme is also in his audience, and that would be Judas. Judas would betray Christ. Judas would deny Christ. That would be his final answer. Judas completely turned away and Judas went to hell. Judas suffered perdition. This is why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we deny him, he will also deny us. Echoing the words of Christ. So principle number nine is this. If, if and when hostility comes into your life because you're doing Christian ministry God's way, when that comes, don't cave in, don't wimp out, don't back down. Confess Christ. You don't take up arms. You don't, you don't make a fist and get ready to fight. Don't punch back. You lovingly, patiently confess that Jesus is your Lord. The idea here then is to continue to confess Christ, right? The idea is to persevere in the faith in the face of persecution. Don't let persecution turn you away from following Christ. Paul would also say to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. There have been many, many people who have done this well throughout church history, right? 
We could spend days talking about the stories of the martyrs and the persecuted church, even up to this present hour around the world, who have done this very thing in the face of persecution when they have been challenged to deny Christ and you can leave. Deny Christ and you can come out of jail. Deny Christ and you can live. Deny Christ and your wife and children will live. And there have been people who have stood firm and said, I will not deny Christ. I confess Christ as my Lord and Savior. And accept the consequences. One great story is the pre-reformer John Huss, who was a Catholic priest in the early 1400s in Bohemia, modern day Czech, Czechoslovakia. John Huss opposed many aspects of the Roman Catholic Church because he began to study his Bible. And God began to open his eyes to the truth of the Bible compared to the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And here was this priest on the inside who knew it well. He knew the practices. He knew the teaching of the church. And so he began to oppose it. And of course, he was quickly excommunicated by the church. And yet he continued to preach Christ. He would not back down. The Pope uh, changed over and uh, Huss then quickly spoke out against the new Pope because he had set in a policy of selling indulgences to raise money for the church. You sell these indulgences to get your relatives out of purgatory. You give your money to the church. It's all a big scam. It's all a big ruse. And John Huss attacks that as well in this new Pope. And so what they did is they said, well, that original excommunication that they didn't really enforce because he kept preaching. They said, we're going to enforce that one now. And he went into exile. Now, we've been in exile, kind of, for like two months, right? John Huss went into exile for two years. People had more patience back then. They, they, they had more endurance back then. Two years in exile. After those two years, they called the Council of Constance. It was a church assembly called by the Catholic Church. And they uh, invited uh, Huss to come and to present his views to the assembly. Well, it was it was all a ruse. As soon as he showed up, they arrested him and threw him in prison. One day they drug him before this church council and they said, we we call you to recant. You need to repent of your opposition to the Catholic Church. You need to recant all of your teaching. And he replied, I would not retreat from the truth for a chapel of gold. Now, that was both a confession of Christ, a firm stand, but it was also a backdoor rebuke. Because that's what the indulgences were all about. Chapels of gold. Well, they sent him promptly back to prison until July 6, 1415, when John Huss, the pre-reformer, was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. And while he was burning... He was singing psalms of praise to God. That's what it means to confess Christ in the face of opposition. One hundred years later, Martin Luther discovered the writings of John Huss, and the world has never been the same. Martin Luther would follow the same path as this pre-reformer. One day he was asked if he would appear before a church-slash-state tribunal. Would Martin come to the trial? Because he knew it would be very dangerous. It would be very risky for Martin to come to the trial because they hated him. And they wanted to kill him. And so someone asked him, would you come if the emperor himself invited you? And Martin Luther said this. He said, if violence is used as well it may be, I commend my cause to God. He lives and reigns who saved the three youths from the fiery furnace of the king of Babylon. 
And if he will not save me, my head is, is worth nothing compared with Christ. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. Then in a private letter a few days later, he wrote this to a friend. This is not the time to cringe, but to cry aloud when our Lord Jesus Christ is damned, reviled, and blasphemed. Well, finally, the famous day arrived about 6 p.m. at the Diet of Worms. The hall was packed. The only person who could sit was the emperor himself. Here is Luther before the Holy Roman Empire emperor. The church leaders. Here is this simple monk, this miner's son. And he's standing beside a table. And on the table are all the books that he's written up to that point. Books attacking the Catholic church. Books talking about what he called the Babylonian captivity of the church. Books that explain justification by faith. Books that explain Christ's atoning sacrifice for sinners. And Martin Luther had all these books before him. And he's standing there. And they want him to renounce everything he's written in those books. After some back and forth between Luther and the prosecuting attorney, the prosecuting attorney, a man named Eck, he finally got fed up with it. And he said, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And then Luther said this, one of the most famous quotes in all church history. He says, since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I can do no other. Martin Luther, 1521. And that unleashed the Protestant Reformation of which we still ride that wave today, 500 years later. Well, it was 140 years after that that a man by the name of John Bunyan, a Puritan pastor who had been influenced by Martin Luther... And the other reformers, John Bunyan would spend 12 years in prison in England for preaching Christ without shame and with great boldness. He was thrown in jail because of the act of nonconformity. He was a Puritan. And during his personal shutdown of 12 years in and out of this terrible prison in the 1600s, he agonized over his starving family. And he made shoelaces. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. The most published work in the history of the world, second only to the Bible. He confessed Christ despite being thrown in jail in deep, tremendous suffering. My question is, who will join John Huss and Martin Luther and John Bunyan in confessing Christ no matter what? No matter the ridicule, no matter the persecution, no matter the ostracization of friends, no matter the loss of money, job, family, no matter what, who will join these pillars of the faith in confessing Christ even unto death? 
Let me give you a most obvious way to confess Christ if you haven't. If you're a believer, God has given you, by design, a beautiful opportunity to confess Christ, and that's called the waters of baptism. Baptism is designed for this very purpose, where we publicly and verbally acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, not just Lord, but my Lord. Where we stand in waters before God's people and testify, right? Confessing, not denying Christ. That is the most obvious application to this verse. If you are a believer here and you have not been baptized by immersion as a believer, then this would be your opportunity to obey Matthew 10 and 32. We'll be having a baptism soon, so stay tuned to the details. Here's another obvious way, of course, to confess Christ, to verbally verbally acknowledge Him, and that is to tell other people about Jesus. It's to be a witness. It's to be a verbal witness about Christ. It's It's to go fishing. It's to go fishing for men and women and boys and girls. It's to take the faith that's deep in your heart and make it visible, make it public, make it verbal, give it some audience, and tell those in your world, in your life, about Christ. We can deny Christ by not confessing him in a sense and so i call you to that other application now the dichotomy between confessing christ and denying christ because christ is the the great divider right Uh, the dichotomy of that leads us to number 10 number 10 is as we do christian ministry we must expect division look at verses 34 through 36 Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came, here's the purpose, to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Here we are uh, seeing clearly we should expect division. There's a command here in verse 34. It's a prohibition. Jesus is saying, do not think like this. Do not imagine. Do not suppose that I came to bring peace on earth. <clears throat> That's not my purpose here. My purpose in this, in this moment is not a false peace and not an instant peace, but my purpose is rather a division. <clears throat> and this division is really explained in verse 35 and 36 as he references A verse in the Old Testament. The verse is Micah, chapter 7, verse 6. This is a figurative sword, of course. Jesus doesn't come with a literal sword. He never comes in violence. He never comes to do anyone physical harm in the gospel. He comes with a figurative sword to divide people at the deepest level and at the most cherished of relationships. Now, Micah 7, 6 is probably describing a time during the tribulation when this will come to full bloom. But it's also got some things that lead up to it. And that's what Jesus is is saying here. Now, this ought to create some tension in our minds because we know that he is the prince of what? Peace. And that Jesus brings to us in reconciliation, he brings to us peace with God. When our sins are forgiven at the cross and, and we believe in Christ and he brings us into peace with God. And then because we have peace with God, we can have peace with each other. And we can have the peace of God in our life. Uh, We've even talked about that in recent weeks. And we know that when the kingdom comes, the Prince of Peace will reign over the world. And there will be peace and prosperity. And and they'll turn their uh, swords into plowshares. And their weapons of war will be turned into instruments of harvest because there will be such abundance. 
So, so what's, what's going on here when he says, I did not come to bring peace? I thought he was all about peace. What's going on here is there's going to be this initial purpose, this temporary purpose that is a division that comes by means of a razor sharp message. A razor sharp message that divides fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws, and the very enemies of your life become the people under the same roof. Because this message has led one to confess Christ and the other to deny Christ. Expect division is the principle. See, the reality is this. King Jesus is the fork in the road, right? Amen. King Jesus is the fork in the road for all humanity. Every soul sitting in this room right now. And the question before us is, are you in or are you out? He divides. His message, His person divides. And then if you're in, then you can be united in the truth. And if you're out, you're united in a lie. But you are divided from one another. Jesus is the great fork in the road of humanity. Jesus is the knife that cuts and divides. The question is, are you for Him or are you against Him? It's binary. It's black and white. There's no gray. There's no third option. You're either for Him or against Him. And if you can't say, I'm for Him, if you can't confess Christ, you don't believe in Christ, then don't kid yourself. That means you deny Him and you don't believe in Him and you're against Him. See, Jesus wants to move people out of a third option. He wants to get people off the proverbial fence. He wants to press these kinds of binary dichotomies, these only two options, confess or deny. Sword dividing us because He divides us. Why is that? Because the message of repentance is confrontational, not cozy. See, we go back to principle number two. We're proclaiming repentance. Not an easy gospel. Not a cheap grace. Not an easy believism. We're proclaiming repentance to people. And that is a confrontational message, not a cozy message. Not a comfortable message. The reality is the true gospel of Jesus Christ leads people to hostility or brokenness. It presses you to one of those two conclusions. You either become hardened and hostile to Christ or you are broken before Him and surrender all as as He is your Lord and Savior. You become mad, glad, or sad. Now this will come to full bloom in the tribulation period when all hell will break loose on the earth and it will be pure chaos. But there's lots of examples along the way. The man gave, given this principle to these 12 apostles experienced it himself. His own family member said he was insane. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That was the path Jesus walked. I think about James and John when he called them to be followers of Christ. The text tells us when he called James and John that they left their father. Can you imagine that conversation? Here they got this great fishing business. 
and, and their father has brought them up in this. And he's, he is so excited that they're going to follow him in the family business. And now this stranger comes along and calls them to follow him to who knows where. And, and they get up and they follow him. I can just imagine the father saying, you are leaving all of this to do what? And even today, Orthodox Jews that come to Christ, Muslims in many parts of the world that come to Christ, Roman Catholics in many parts of the world that come to Christ, they will be disowned or worse by their family. Mothers will disown daughters. There are stories of fathers beating their daughters who have confessed Christ in Muslim contexts. This is happening as we speak all over the world People are taking a stand for Jesus and being disowned, persecuted, beaten, and even killed. So if we're going to do Christian ministry, we must expect division at the most cherished levels of life. And that brings us right into number 11. Really the the climax of this passage, I think. As this division comes... We must be prepared in advance to give complete and total allegiance to Christ. Complete and total allegiance to Christ. Look at verses 37 to 39. After speaking of these family relationships, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, for my sake, will find it. We must model and call people to a complete surrender to Christ. Total allegiance. Radical Loyalty, uncompromising obedience to Christ. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth total surrender and complete obedience and radical self-denial and uncompromising loyalty. Here then is the, the, the call to complete surrender to the Lordship of Christ over every area of your life. So we model this and we call people to this where there is no stone unturned in your life. There is no room untouched. There is no sin undisturbed. Everything is yielded to Christ. Nothing is held back. And he is pressing us to this by this comparison to familial love. It's phileo love here in verse 37. He is saying that even this familial love and this familial Loyalty that is ingrained in human existence. Love for family is a powerful force throughout the history of the world. He says even that love cannot surpass love for Jesus because no family member compares with Jesus. No mother, no father, no son, no daughter, no one under your roof compares with Jesus. And if you must choose between Him and them, you must choose Him. We must give complete allegiance to Christ and Christ alone because He is worth it. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in every. Everything, in everything. Verse 38, he says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is often misunderstood. We have misunderstood the cross to mean a difficult person or kidney stones. (laughs) Oh, it's just my cross to bear. No, a cross was an instrument of death. A cross was an instrument of execution. And so to take up your cross and follow Jesus is to yield to Him ownership of your life, ownership of everything. It's multi-level meaning here. It's got the idea of dying daily to yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. I die to myself. I die to sin. I die to my kingdoms. I die to my dreams. I'm dying. I'm dying because I want to live in Christ. And so it has that level of meaning. It also has a level of meaning that I must be willing to die for Him if necessary. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is I will literally die for this man if it comes to it. That's what it means to give complete allegiance to Christ. Taking up cross then is how we give this complete allegiance. It's what it looks like. It was also Peter's final answer. I recently read a book called Parting the Waters, Pulitzer Prize winning book written in the late 80s. Subtitle is America During the King Years, Martin Luther King Jr. Years of 1955 to 1963. I was very interested in this book because I was born in 1965 and all of my ancestry is from the deep south, Tennessee. My dad's from Mississippi. So most of this book takes place in, in Alabama, Birmingham, Montgomery, Georgia. Mississippi, and I was really struck by this book, and I was struck by the sacrifice and the willingness of these civil rights warriors to endure beatings, to endure jail, injustice, hate, abuse, bombs, their churches were bombed, their houses were bombed, gunshots, violence, cold-blooded murder, that would then get acquitted two days later by all white juries. It's heinous, heinous sins. Intimidation. And they did all of this for the cause of civil rights, for the cause of integration, for the cause of of voting rights. It's unbelievable. In 1960s, blacks could not vote in the South. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation was a hundred years before. And so they're fighting for this cause. It was a great cause. But it's not the greatest. And I think about the soldiers and the sailors that we honor on days like yesterday, Armed Forces Day and Memorial Day and July 4th and Veterans Day. And, and we have a culture that, that wants to honor patriotism and, and the ultimate sacrifice of sailors and soldiers and airmen. 
for the cause of America and the cause of democracy and the cause of freedom. It's a great, great cause. But it's not the greatest. And today we're praising nurses and doctors and EMS folks for serving humanity in the face of personal risk. Humanity is a great cause, but it is not the greatest. There is none greater than the gospel, and there is no cause more worthy than Jesus. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39 then, look at it, it it explains verse 38. Verse 39 unpacks verse 38. He says, whoever has found his life will lose it. So this is not a good finding. (laughs) And this is a bad losing. What he means here is the person who has lived their entire life on their own terms... With them at the center, right? To find your life is to live life on your terms for your end, for your aim. It's to live your life apart from Christ as your master. To find your own life is self-actualization and psychology. It's Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. It's Billy Joel's, it's my life, leave me alone. It's self-magazine. I mean, all the cards are on the table, right? Just by the name of the magazine. (laughs) And it's today's little vernacular, you do you. Have you been watching The Last Dance? The CSPN documentary of Michael Jordan's last year with the Chicago Bulls. It's the most watched documentary already ever that ESPN's ever produced. Called The Last Dance, and I think tonight's the last two episodes. Well, if you've watched that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To find your life is the best description there is of Michael Jordan and his life. And you watch this and you just see it so clearly, so evidently. This is a perfect example of someone who has found his life only to lose it in the end. But if you lose your life, look at verse 39. He who has lost his life, he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Here he speaks of the purpose that we find, the joy that we find, the meaning that we find, the eternal life that we find, true salvation and forgiveness and glory and 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 all of the blessings of following Christ. If you lose your life for Jesus, you end up finding it in the end. Now you'll notice all through this, it's all binary, isn't it? There's only two options all the way through this passage. It reminds me of what we're trying to do right now as a culture, which is very, very difficult. We're trying this thing called a partial reopening (laughs) and a gradual moving into normal. And it's nearly impossible. I mean, just on our little tiny scale here as a church, we've had all kinds of challenges and all kinds of questions and all kinds of decisions because a gradual return is next to impossible. We're not meant to live that way. We're not meant to live in some halfway mediocre partial manner. I mean, either do it or don't do it, right? And that's where we all are caught up in this, in this culture. And it's a great illustration of this truth. Partial allegiance to Christ does not work. It can't work. It's got to be all or nothing. It's completely in or you're completely out. You see, fence sitting is very uncomfortable. Have you ever sat on a fence? Have you actually sat on a fence? You will become miserable in about five minutes. 
It is uncomfortable. You can't be there. Get in this field or get in that field. Make your choice and live it out to the full. Give complete allegiance to Christ. It's the only way the Christian life works. Trust me, I've tried it. I've tried the other ways. They don't work. And so what we must do is we must model something and then we call other people to it. And it's this. Surrender everything to Christ. Surrender everything to Christ and call other people to do the same. Now, I have a theory. Is it possible that our easy, soft gospel throughout our culture is that way? Because so few people are willing to model complete surrender to Christ. Is the problem with the gospel, the messengers of the gospel, who want to soften it and compromise it because they themselves don't want to live sold out to Christ? So how can I possibly call somebody else to do so? I think that has a great bearing on why the gospel is so toothless in our age. That is principle number 11. We must model and give complete allegiance to Christ. Finally, number 12, believe in rewards. Look at the last two verses, three verses. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. That's salvation. That's what he's describing. You receive the Christian messenger with the Christian message who comes to you in the name of Christ. You receive that person. You receive their message. You just receive Christ. And if you receive Christ, you received the Father. And what he just described in verse 40 is salvation. Here is the first reward. Salvation itself. He goes on, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his what? Reward. Principle number 12 is believe in rewards. These here are promised rewards. For those who support the twelve. He is not directly here promising the twelve rewards. He's promising the rewards to the people who give them hospitality. He's promising rewards to the people who support them. Who send them. Who encourage them. It's incredible. I do not have to go to Sierra Leone with the Moseses to get the same reward as the Moses family. Sorry, Jeffrey. (laughs) I'm going to stay here and get the same reward that you get for going. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. There's the reward here first of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because he mediates the grace of God. You can't get grace from God apart from Jesus. There is no other road. There is no other way. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so to receive him is to receive the Father. And if you don't receive him, you don't get the Father. You don't get God if you don't get Jesus. All right? So it begins that way with salvation. And then it moves to the reward for Christian workers. Let me explain this to you briefly. Jesus here refers to the apostles as prophets, as a righteous man, and as disciples. All of these references here are to the twelve. They're references to the apostles. 
And he is saying to them that as you go out, those who receive you, those who receive a prophet, a spokesman for God, because you are a spokesman for God, will receive your your reward. They'll receive the reward of a spokesman for God. And he who receives a righteous man, because that righteous man displays the character of God, he who receives that person, because they are righteous, receives that person's reward. And then finally, so he's called them prophets, and they were, and he's called them righteous men, and they were. And now finally, in verse 42, he refers to them as little ones, as humble ones, as insignificant ones, as followers of Christ, little disciples. And what he is saying in verse 42 is this, and this is so sweet. He says, if you give an insignificant disciple of Christ the smallest gesture of kindness... A cup of cold water on a hot day. The very smallest gesture of kindness. If you do that because that person is a follower of Christ. Then God will give you an unending reward. You will by no means ever, ever, ever lose a reward. For a cup of cold water given to a follower of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It all speaks of our value to Him. It speaks of our importance to Him. Because we're connected to God in Christ, God promises rewards to those who treat us well as we do Christian ministry. And so we can promise reward, we can believe in reward, we can talk about reward. There's no doubt of these 12 principles that this is the least practiced of the 12. And yet Jesus ends his workshop on Christian ministry with the motivation of rewards. It's what he saves for last. He doesn't end with persecution and death and suffering and, 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 you know, denying, uh, yourself and, and loving me more than your mother or your father. He doesn't end with that. He ends with his motivation system of rewards. He says, believe in rewards. Believe in rewards. If you send and support a Christian minister of any kind, you will be rewarded as if you went. And if you go, you will be rewarded for going. In other words, everybody gets rewarded. God's grace is so massive, it's so magnanimous that He saves us from our sin, calls us to ministry, gives us gifts to do it, ordains the good works that we are to walk in, and then rewards us for the obedience that He enabled and prompted and carried through. It's incredible. Believe in rewards. If you don't believe in rewards, you don't believe Jesus. You don't believe the words of Jesus. You don't believe what motivated Jesus, what motivated the twelve, what's motivated Paul and Peter and all of them. Believe in rewards. That's our final principle then. Is one through twelve. Well, there's seven through twelve. Kind of put one through twelve in your mind as well as I conclude. Pilots have a checklist, right, before they take off in the plane, before they get off the ground and take all of those souls into their hands, until they launch into that great risk, that great responsibility of I'm I'm bearing the weight of these hundred or two hundred passengers on this plane. They have a checklist that they must religiously go through, right? Methodically go through. Pilot and co pilot. 
And like flying, Christian ministry, that's what we've been talking about now for four weeks, our ministry as Christians, every believer ministering to someone, like flying, this is no game, people. This is no hobby. This is not some recreational sport. We're not weekend warriors that come to church and talk about God on Sunday and then do whatever. No, we're we're living out a Christian life all the time. We are all about ministry to others. And so we need a checklist. And here it is, 1 to 12. I have a feeling the pilot's checklist is a lot longer if you think this one's too long. (laughs) But here it is. Here's our checklist before we take off. Before we bear the weight of the souls of people. Here's my checklist. And then once I take off and I'm flying, here's my dashboard to monitor the flight. And then when the flight is over... Here will be the basis of my review and my reward. Ministry according to the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible chapter of Matthew and these principles that we can live and minister by. How they reveal Christ to us, ultimately. The one worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our belief, worthy of our repentance worthy of our love. And Lord, I go back to Second uh, Corinthians 4 and just realize that you must shine the light. You must open blind eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I pray you would do that this morning. Maybe there's a young person here, a child, a teenager, who's been sitting on the, on the fence and they're miserable and they're ready to repent and give their lives over wholly to Christ. A child, Lord, can do this by your grace. We know that. Or maybe there's a long-time churchgoer who, uh, who's never really pledged allegiance to Christ, never really surrendered all. They love mother and father more than you. They love son and daughter more than you. They love their own life more than you. And today, by your grace, they're ready for that to end. We pray, God, that they would cross over and join those whom you have called to lose their life, that they might live forever. Thank you for your word and for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.